Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder. Surface with hope. My name is Amy Isham. Today, we're getting into the question, what's with our obsession with true crime? Earlier this year, Triton Digital's Australian podcast ranker showed that Case File, an Australian true crime podcast, had risen to number one in Australia, beating out Hamish and Andy. Apart from Case File, there are approximately 120 podcasts about true crime, and that's just from Australian content creators. Since Serial, the popular spin-off from This American Life podcast in 2014, it seems our appetite for this kind of journalism meets narrative non-fiction is insatiable. Criminology has long looked at the role of media in contributing to fear of crime. And so not just the true crime genre as we now know it, but also crime drama. And before that, newspaper clippings, the radio or the wireless So what's with our morbid curiosity? Even those of us who can't stomach graphic and dark shows about Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy or the Golden State Killer will probably still find ourselves enjoying an Agatha Christie novel or another cosy mystery. What is it about crime in general that we're drawn to? Whatever it is, it's the car wreck we can't look away from. To help us explore this question, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Michael Gazzoni, Mike is a criminologist at the School of Social Sciences at the University of Tasmania. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on Deeper Questions. Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure. Now, um, when I first met you, I think you were at my house. I think we were having pizza and you were wearing, I think it was a houndstooth waistcoat and you actually took your pocket watch out and I was just blown away. So can you give us a background on what your style and fashion comes from? Yeah, thanks, Amy. I um, When I was a boy, I was really into Titanic and all the phenomena around that. And so, um, you know, reading about it and, of course, the film uh, really got into men's fashion from the 20th century. And so as a young adult, when I had my own job and had some money, that's when I started to, to buy waistcoats and a pocket watch and fountain pens and all those kind of things. And, yeah, kind of stuck. Um, like my, my dad also um, wears wore a suit when I was growing up and also went to a school where there was a uniform. So I think that that combination of things really cemented it for me, I suppose. Oh, I love that. I was I was really into Titanic too. Yeah. Not so much the fashion. That's amazing. I love it. Thank you. So like I think a lot of us, especially if we are into true crime, we might think we know what a criminologist does. But could you walk us through um, how you decided to become a criminologist and how you got there? Yeah, thank you. I guess at the outset, I'm kind of an accidental criminologist. And as it happens, um, last year I was at a conference and we were at a dinner of academics and um, there were all these professors there. What really struck me about that was that for a lot of them, they also, you know, just came into academia. They didn't intend to do it at the outset. Of course, Mm. many of my colleagues um, have a different experience. But for me, I went to law school to become a barrister a criminal law barrister. Mm. Um, and in my first year of study, I needed one more line of units. And so I asked my parents uh, who were teachers and my mum said, oh, you should do sociology. And I, I didn't really want to because, you know, that's her thing, I thought at the time. But I really enjoyed it. Um, we looked at structure, agency, norms, values, deviance, why and how society shapes the manner in which people think, why people do what they do. And there was one academic, um, Jan Pakulski, Professor Jan Pakulski, who also taught my parents. Uh, and he really instilled in me the interest in how organizations, how structures shape people. Came to the end of the year and th- we were plugged criminology. And I thought, well, I want to be a, in the law. So it makes sense. And after my third year of study, I wanted to take some time off. Uh, and so I took a gap year and did a research degree, honors degree. At the end of that, it was suggested, oh, you should, you know, do a doctorate. And so I put my hat in the ring and was awarded a scholarship, Uh, completed my doctoral studies at the University of Tasmania, and then one contract led to another, and here I am as a criminologist. But interest in structures, interest in why people do what they do led to one opportunity to another, and, well, that's here I am, yeah. Wow, thanks for that. can see it kind of unfolding. Yeah, and I share that passion for understanding 
people and why they do things. I think that's um, it, it's an amazing thing to try and understand. Mm. So between teaching and then doing research that brings funding in, is any of your kind of work connected to solving crimes? Yeah, uh, yes and no, I think. Um, whenever I'm introduced to someone and they say, oh, you're a criminologist, you, you must be involved in police or forensics. And for me, the answer is no. I do have colleagues who research police and who work with police, and I do have a colleague who works in forensics. But for me as a criminologist, my work is mainly about document analysis, analysis of policy, surveys and interviews. And so my my line of work is more about crime prevention. And so it's not directly involved in, you know, investigating crime or bringing people to justice, although certainly my work involves reading about these things. I think for me, as an early career academic, my main contribution has been in contributing to the creation of a safeguarding course, um, which has been developed at the University of Tasmania in the Peter Underwood Centre, but also I've reviewed a safeguarding module produced by the Tasmanian government. And I was summoned as an expert witness to an inquiry in Tasmania. Mm. So I think they are ways in which I've contributed to justice broadly, but I haven't been a a Sherlock Holmes or anything like that. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, amazing. You do look a bit like Sherlock Holmes. but Thank you. Yeah, I, I see that value of policy prevention. Policy writing is so important. Now, um... I read a bit about your doctorate on institutional abuse, especially, and um, obviously there's so many different factors in abuse, especially when institutions are involved. Absolutely. And I found your article on emotional labour really helpful after I was processing some things from my own research. Could you unpack that, um, what emotional labour is and what it's like, um, I guess, as working as a criminologist, why is there emotional labour involved? Thank you. Glad to hear that the work was helpful for you, Amy. I think uh, emotional labour, it's, it's in a lot of different disciplines and it really stems from the work of an American academic called Hochschild. In that work, from memory, it's talking about flight attendants. Uh, but really, emotional labour is, to put it simply, the self-regulation of behaviour. And it comes in two forms. The first form is what's called surface acting. And that is to say it's changing of one's uh, emotions or facial expressions in order to, you know, put those around them at ease. Uh, And we see this often in in hospitality, for example. And for those of us who've worked in hospitality, we know this is part of the job. If there's a rude customer, we have to smile, um, even though we might be disappointed or upset by what they've done. Mm. But also there's a more deeper or sinister, one could say, uh, component of emotional labour, which is that deep inner uh, regulation of behaviour, which is called deep acting. And this is where the individual seeks to not only change the appearance of emotions, but actually to manipulate one's own emotion. Now, on one level, that's understandable because in some roles we can think, oh yeah, you know, they need to keep it together to keep their composure. But on another level, it can be argued to be sinister because it means that genuine emotional responses to negative stimuli um, is being overlooked for the purpose of maintaining one's role. Mm. And so literature draws attention to uh, emotional labour in police, for lawyers, uh, a lot of different professions, and even in criminology. Uh, For a number of years, criminologists overlooked this. A British scholar by the name of Yvonne Dukes drew attention to the fact that in my discipline for a number of years, there was the reluctance to engage with emotion. Mm. Uh, But rather, and and really that's to keep, and I'm sure you have know this from your own doctoral training in your field, there's that intent, Amy, to be seen as the impartial, you know, white lab coat academic who's not affected by emotion. And so this particularly affects criminology uh, because a lot of what we do, what we read about at least, is very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, now, granted, there are, are there some areas of criminology where that's not as bad or as profound, but really it's a matter of having to do it at all times because it's part of our role. I think for me, the main struggle was the realisation of, well, it's kind of my own fault because I chose to be a criminological researcher. And on the other hand, there's always the reflection of, well, you're not in the field 
you're not personally a victim of crime, you know, you're not there on the front lines like police, for instance. But a lot of the literature points to this the severity of secondary traumatization as well and vicarious trauma, which is when one experiences the symptoms and consequences of trauma by exposure to individuals who have gone through a traumatic event. Um, and that can be both in psychology, for example, medicine, nursing, um, but also in research. And we see this in criminology. We see it in the social sciences. Mm. So um, just recently, there's been a book which has been edited by Phillips and colleagues in 2020, and it's titled Emotional Labor in Criminal Justice and Criminology. And this is not a plug for the book, but it is a good book. <laughs> but if anyone's interested to read further, that book really highlights the fact that it's not just one or two criminologists who have this experience of emotional labor, but it's actually spread across the criminal justice system itself and the discipline itself. And so by drawing attention to these things, I think, as a society and as a profession, we can help ensure that people receive the support that they need. Yeah, thanks so much for that. I think, um, yeah, that's really important. I think even at the beginning when you were talking, I was thinking uh, that kind of adjusting of your face during, say, a long Zoom meeting or long Zoom class, we can all know that fatigue. Mm. But I think a lot of us felt that vicarious trauma even during the pandemic if we were in our homes mm. watching Netflix and going, oh, there's people out there really struggling. And, yeah, as you said, we feel a bit guilty, like I'm not really out there, but it's still the trauma and the pain. We we have to kind of process it and at least acknowledge it. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's uh, it must be really um, difficult, particularly for people who are in the kind of sociology where they're speaking directly to offenders and trying to process those those emotions. Yes, indeed. So what I'm wondering is, and maybe this is not the case at all, but how do you think our society is processing the emotional labour of consuming so much true crime? Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. And several things come to mind. Firstly, I think of the fear of crime. And criminology has long looked at the role of media in contributing to fear of crime. And so not just the the true crime genre as we now know it, but also crime drama. Um, and before that, newspaper clippings, the, the radio or the wireless. And so on one level, we know that increased exposure to crime in news and or in media content such as drama, so Midsummer Murders and those kind of shows, has been known to be linked to an increased uh, apprehension or fear of crime. Mm. And conversely, when individuals are not exposed to that content, there's uh, a lower experience of fear. And so in that sense, I think that as a society, there is that emotional labour attached to the fear of crime. And what's interesting is that an academic based in Sydney, Professor Murray Lee, has looked at this with colleagues. And in their paper of interest is that they distinguish between an experience of fear or anxiety and anxiety to the extent where it negatively affects their life, so changing of behaviour, um, withdrawal kind of behaviours. Mm, so like a shutdown, sort of shut down from the emotions instead of experiencing it. Absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. Um, and so I think on one level we have that kind of widespread fear of crime because of this, but for others there is that shutdown as you aptly describe. And so I think on one level this genre is contributing to that, particularly because other scholars um, have really drawn attention to the difference between drama versus true, you know. Mm. And I think particularly too, from what I've read and understand that if it's local, and we know that local news, for example, is more uh, effect effective in contributing to apprehensions of crime than, say, if I was watching news from where you're stationed at the moment mm. and vice versa. And so I think as a culture, there is that component about the fear of crime. But also I think there's, uh, and, you know, other forums can talk about this as well, there's the commodification of this kind of thing. Mm. And so personally, as a criminologist who's really interested in how society affects the perceptions of crime, I can't help but worry about how that's affecting, you know, not only how we perceive crime generally, 
but also how we're then responding to it. Because if it's something which is entertainment and something which is being commodified, part of me wonders if, well, we should have that kind of separation and we shouldn't dwell on it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I worry about desensitization and I worry about commodification leading to uh, the emotions not being dealt with in a proper manner. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Like the latest season of Black Mirror is looking at the Netflixification of true crime. So we yes. kind of consume it like a product, as you say. Mm. And especially if it isn't real, like it's not real crime, it's drama, mm. our response will be different than if it were real. Mm. Are we still able to feel compassion for people that are suffering? Mm. I can see you're very troubled by it. Yeah. Uh, and I think the Black Mirror, I haven't watched Black Mirror, but some of my colleagues have. Mm. And I'd be interested to hear your view on it. I, they really say that some of it really struck them. Mm. And I, I recall a conversation about, I think it was about artificial intelligence or something about viewing patterns. And for them, it just felt, and of course, no disrespect to those who produced it, it felt invasive. Mm. But my colleague's reflection was that that was intentional. And so I guess that's the other thing too, isn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah, fine line between art and advocacy, maybe. I don't know. One of the terms that was in the most recent season was the way to get deeper engagement from people is to evoke mesmerizing horror. Wow. So you would get more viewers if someone is mesmerized by the horror of what they're seeing than if they were pleased or comforted, which is wow. kind of scary. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I haven't read much into that area, but I have seen an article uh, which does address that elicit of fear as being more efficacious than pleasure. And I think that uh, it's it's a contested area of criminology, but there was an article talking about violent video games and violent television and desensitization. And it talked about how repeated exposure to violence led to less and less uh, of that fear. And so, you know, you need more, and not you personally, but one needs more and more of um, that kind of fear to stimulate. Yeah, it's a interesting area. Yeah. And I found that too. When I was teaching social science, you had students kind of arguing both sides and, and the people that liked to game would be like, no, it's fine. I'm able to separate those areas of my life. And then others that were really like, oh no, I don't game. That's so really disturbing. I'm not going there. Mm. It's not something we can put a line under, but it is, uh, it's something to think through. Mm. That kind of segues into deviant behavior, which I think is something I'd really love to hear you on. Mm. So what is deviant behavior, considering, of course, that if you go right back to the 50s, deviance was the kind of stuff that is pretty normal now. Mm, true, yeah. So what do you think, where do you think you can draw that line or what is deviant? Yeah, thank you. That, uh, it's a really interesting question. Um, and there's so much we could say and we could talk about on it. And I think that really just shows um, the wonder of this area of study. Really, deviance is any action, omission, statement or notion which violates or fails to comply with the norms, principles or expectations of a society en masse or a social group. Mm. And typically, the breaching of these norms and expectations and principles leads to the execution of negative sanctions uh, in order to curb or prevent the recurrence of those things or the holding to those things. Now, that's the textbook wordy answer. But typically, it's non-conformance to that which is deemed to be normative. Now, this can be more than one thing. Uh, it can also be significant or insignificant. And as you rightly mentioned, Amy, it changes over time. Traditionally, criminologists and sociologists would draw attention to individuals called moral entrepreneurs. And these are individuals in position of moral authority. Traditionally, it was uh, religious leaders, for example, other times it's been, and perhaps more so now, it's been political leaders, uh, doctors, academics, although that's contested now. Uh, and as well, we see influencers, for example. So trendsetters, culture setters. And so it can be a small thing, such as a white lie in some areas might be seen as, you know, taboo. In other contexts, it's fine. Mm. It can be the performing of a, an act which is deemed to be illegal. Um, that can be seen as deviant. And of course, there are variations of severity. But 
What's important to note is that it depends on the context, uh, it depends on the time and the space, uh, and really what is undertaken and with whom. And so with um, thinking about the 1950s, I think on one level we think about at that stage culture was more homogenous, one could argue, and there were more set norms. I think it's also interesting to note that those subcultures have always existed and sociology and criminology have always drawn attention to the role of subcultural deviation, that is, individuals in certain groups which lead to this deviant behaviour. Howard Becker, a famous American sociologist, draws attention to marijuana, becoming a marijuana user. It's kind of like the textbook in this field and how over time one became, you know, into jazz music and then, you know, got into the marijuana and, you know, (laughs) and at at the time, as you know, and I'm sure many of the people listening would know, jazz was, you know, subculturally deviant. Yeah. It was against the norm. Um, And so Becker in his text, Outsiders, draws attention to this process of becoming deviant. But as you rightly said, like, in many places now, marijuana isn't a thing. It's not a concern, nor is jazz. Uh, and so really, that is of consideration, the fact that over time things change. But I think also the internet's the big one. Like in the 1950s, an individual, as we know, would have to find that subcultural group. And it might not be in their town. Certainly, perhaps, and well, indeed, in certain urban centres, it was easier. But I think with the internet now, People can just find their subculture. They can go to Reddit, the website, and find their people, you know? Yeah, that's right. There's so many subreddits for every single thing that you're interested in, Mm. deviant or not. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, one of my favourite things to teach on was uh, bronies. Have you heard of bronies? Yes, I have, yes. The guys that are into My Little Ponies. And then some people say, oh, no, it's actually, it is very deviant and there's a lot of deviance attached to it. But Mm. the part I was interested in was the very innocent, no, I just really like watching My Little Ponies with my sister. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the thing, isn't it? There's that um, trajectory or not trajectory, but like a a scale, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I found interesting is, um, and I noticed you're very cautious about, because a lot of the deviant behavior is probably not appropriate for this podcast anyway, mm. like the the levels of darkness that our society is really comfortable with would have been really very shocking to a 1950s audience. And it's like you say with jazz, and, and we kind of joke about, haha, things that people used to blame on jazz. Mm. But in the, at the time, it, it felt very dangerous. Absolutely, yeah. So... What I want to get into now is that distance between deviance and normalcy. So Mm. I used to teach on dark tourism. So we did a class on particular criminals that were at Ararat prison. I felt a bit uncomfortable with the the dark tourism. It felt, again, commodifying someone's pain and suffering, even if those people were considered to be deviant. Understandably. So do you think that we like looking at deviance to make ourselves feel normal, perhaps? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think in thinking of theory, the functionalist perspective would draw attention to the fact that deviancy is really important for the purpose of social cohesion. And so outlining someone who is a deviant really helps affirm the status quo and what is deemed to be normative behavior or normative belief. And so on one level, I think that an individual can look at the one who has been deemed to be the outsider, to use Becker's language, uh, and can have that assurance of, I'm doing the right thing. I'm normal because I'm not like that person. Mm. And I think that this is, in criminology, we keep coming back to this as a discipline, that once an individual is deemed to be othered or is an outsider, that label, and again, this is um, within the labeling perspective, again, this is Becker and others, it's, it's then so easy for individuals to distinguish themselves from that person even though if for a number of criminals, for instance, let's think of marijuana use again, if individuals were in the same circumstances, whether it is stress or the same social groups or other what we call criminogenic risk factors, those variables which increase the likelihood of undertaken criminal acts, they would likely perhaps have done that same criminal act or that deviant act. Mm. And so I think that there is that kind of comparison and I think that at times individuals can feel 
reassured. And I think, you know, that's an understandable thing, you know, like, and we hear it all the time, don't we, in schools or whenever certain crimes are heard, it's like, well, that person's not Adolf Hitler. Um, And there's a lot of literature on the techniques of neutralization. Mm. And this is by American academic Sykes and Matz. It's a classic text. And one of it is, you know, always, it's, it's a way that individuals seek to distance themselves from, you know, a label of criminal or deviant, but also to, you know, really neutralize this, the severity or the criminality of what they've done. And within that, there's the, you know, arguments of, you know, there was no harm done, there was no victim. And so I think this can move into that. Mm. But I think for other people, there's always that fascination with the deviant other. Yeah, I think people just really are drawn to seeing how people are different. Yeah, good question. Lots to it. Yeah, and I think this leads into the next point. Um, We'll start really getting into why we're addicted to true crime specifically. Mm. Because we've had... Uh, like I didn't grow up with Lifetime movies, but I know a lot of Americans did. Hmm. And they are kind of really detailed blow by blow uh, descriptions as described by, I guess, survivors. Hmm. And then we have these more sophisticated and intelligent streaming series. But true crime podcasts seem to just exploded over the last few years. Hmm. Why do you think we're so drawn to that narrative genre that deals with criminal behavior? Interesting question. In doing some reading, for our discussion today, I think it's worth noting that the academics draw attention to the fact that, again, like we mentioned earlier, this is not necessarily a new genre. It's a new medium, one could argue. So we know that um, really radio during the 1930s, for instance, in the States, had a number of what academics call the docudrama. Um, And it's in that that the kind of dramatization of, you know, the goodies fighting the baddies, namely police and uh, Battles and Keeler in 2022 talk about this and in, in more depth. But also we know that um, books, newspaper clippings, journalism, I should say, have always looked into this. So in the area I, I teach on juvenile justice, and one of the things that we see is that throughout the centuries, there's been that recurrent interest and concern about the deviant young person, the criminal youth. And so we see this appearing again and again. Some have drawn attention to the fact that, well, you know, it sells. Media sells. Mm. And so there is, you know, a heightened concern. And so this draws people in. But I think to directly answer your question, there are a number of things that have been pointed out by uh, scholars in the field. I think on one level, there's the how it's arranged, you know, there's music, there's uh, changes in tone, there's suspense, the way in which the uh, the podcast host uses their language and their voice to to use these uh, variables to change how people think and how they feel it. Um, particularly, I think, with how audio can be heard through a good set of earphones, that can really amplify the experience. But also, I think, too, there's a real interest in understanding why people do what they do. Other people have drawn attention to, you know, motivations. And so Bolling and Hull in 2018 asked a number of people, you know, why do you listen to true crime? And a lot of people talked about uh, entertainment. Now, on one level, that's understandable uh, and perhaps not surprising because people watch true crime documentaries. People watch, you know, Midsummer Murders and other other shows. But this is less so than education, though education does come in. Some argue that it's a matter for individuals to understand how victims experience crime, how it could be for them, you know, if the listener was to be uh, victimised in some way. But others mainly focus on entertainment. Mm. And I think the what we're seeing in the literature is that it's something that can be listened to whilst doing other things. And so some people have said in these inquiries into why they listen to the podcast, it's I do it while I'm, you know, cleaning or cooking or driving. And so it's a matter of, you know, relieving boredom in one sense. But I think what's interesting and perhaps concerning, depending on how one looks at it, is when we really drill down into what type of podcast one's listening to in the context of true crime, 
it's the very serious types of crime. So it's mainly related to serial killers, people who have gone missing, uh, and homicide cases by partners. So these are the more serious crimes that we hear about in the media, rather than, say, the crimes which perhaps occur more frequently, such as theft or um, online crime. And so there's, I think what we're seeing is there is a fascination. Um, Individuals have said that they find it compelling, that they enjoy solving crime like a puzzle, and they enjoy the deduction component of being walked through the evidence as as well. And this comes from a, a paper by Vitus, I hope I pronounced their name right, and Ryan in 2023, uh, who surveyed a number of university students in Queensland and their viewing habits. Um, so, yeah, we have the audio experience, we have the entertainment c- component, but we also have that intrigue, wanting to move through the evidence themselves and to be involved in that process. So there's some of the the reasons we're seeing in the literature. That's really helpful because I think, uh, and even as you were saying, the way it's set up, the way the music tells you what you're supposed to be thinking and feeling at that moment, that's a much more comfortable experience than getting ripped off, Mm. having your credit card ripped off online and finding that someone spent $1,000. Absolutely. (laughs) It's like, okay, I know what I'm meant to be feeling right now. I'm meant to be feeling uh, unease as we do this setup of Mm. what the story is going to be. I'm aware that something bad is going to happen. Who will it be? Who will be the person who is the victim? And yeah, it it changes that process. We're not thinking about it as a... Like we are thinking about the pain of the person who's experiencing a crime, but we're thinking of it, as you said, as a puzzle to deduce. Hmm. I guess that's how we distance. That's that state of distance again. We can go to a state of neutrality and become a detective. Hmm. And so that leads into my next question about the layman detective, which I think is a really interesting thing because as um, I was listening to a lot of true crime during the COVID pandemic. And I'm not sure why. I still don't know why. I just, maybe all your answers are part of it, but I'm not really sure. I just wanted to. But one of the things I noticed, there was a particular uh, podcast that actually has gone down now called The Murder Squad. And it had Paul Holes, who was a retired uh, forensic uh, detective. So he actually worked in labs. Okay. And he was part of solving the Golden State Killer DNA case through familial DNA. Mm. And there was a whole, I found an explosion of other podcasts that were trying to figure out crimes that had occurred in their own backyard. And one guy actually flushed out somebody. Wow. He started, he did like a 12-part podcast for a, a woman that was in his town that he'd seen billboards of for years. Wow. And he managed to get law enforcement, they were listening and they heard new evidence and they were able to uncover where her body had been laid. Uh, so I know this is probably not the norm, But do you think there might be some help for law enforcement? Can we use this kind of genre for helping the justice system? It's a great question. And the literature that I've read um, has shown that it has, in fact, in some instances, contributed to justice. And it's really interesting to to read about it. So Lily Paikwe, I hope I've pronounced her name right, uh, in a recent article draws attention to how in our own country of Australia, there have been two podcasts which have helped reignite what were seen to be closed and cold cases. So one, which I'm sure you've heard of, Amy, and others who are listening might have as well, there's a podcast by the name of The Teacher's Pet, uh, and this came out in 2018. Headley Thomas was at the helm of this project, mm-hmm. and it concerns a 1982 disappearance of a lady named Lynette Dawson, and Dawson was in Sydney. The podcast indicated that Chris Dawson, the husband to Lynette, was the murderer. And this reignited attention to the case and, you know, lots of people were downloading it to the extent where investigation took up again and eventually it led to an arrest, it led to a court case uh, and it led to a conviction. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't without, you know, concern. There were, you know, Um, The podcast, as I understand, had to be come down at a certain point so as to not influence the jury. Uh, For those who might not be sure about this, it is not uncommon for what we call gagging orders, crudely put, to be had on journalism and their focus on crimes. For example, the Cardinal George Pell case is a recent example of where um, 
you know, there was a media gagging order in the jurisdiction in which the trial was taking place. Mm. Um, and there have been some commentary on, you know, that some points of evidence because of the podcast was inadmissible or not helpful. But uh, more broadly, evidence came to light and attention was so widespread that it led to further action being undertaken, mm. which is really interesting, isn't it? Another one I've got here is also Australian uh, and it's by it's called Trace, and this was by Rachel Brown uh, of the ABC, and this ran between 2017 and 2018, and this concerned the murder of Maria James, and this occurred in 1980. And at the time, it was deemed to be, you know, we're not sure how it happened, hmm. but what happened was because of this podcast, an individual came forward and was interviewed, as I understand it, on the podcast. And they said that they had actually witnessed the person who was deemed to be the murderer, in fact, uh, on the time, on the day when the, um, the murder took place, was covered in blood and was distressed. And so this evidence contributed to the case being reopened and this led to, uh, to justice as well. And there's other examples you can find from the United States, for example, the Curtis Flowers case, similar the podcast led to individuals coming forward. It was found that um, evidence the trial was fabricated by some witnesses, that the prosecutor was, you know, racist in, you know, challenging people so the jury couldn't be, couldn't have African-American people on the jury, for example. Mm. Uh, and so these cases led to justice. It, it's really interesting. Now, that said, there are other academics who caution us in assuming that all podcasts will have like a Poirot moment, you know. <laughs> um, some have criticised that a number of podcasts, and, and of course this is with no disrespect on my part, open more questions but don't give solutions. And that's the critique of Yardley Kelly and Robertson Edwards in 2019. Others have been concerned, and this is uh, Slack Off in 2023, concerned about victim-blaming narratives in some of the podcasts that they have listened to. But I think one thing that really struck me in reading for this interview with you, Amy, is that um, Yardley Kelly and Robertson Edwards, in their reflection on the podcast genre and true crime, drew attention to the fact that what they call popular criminology is, is in their words, and I quote, a wake-up call for criminology, end quote. And really, as a discipline, this is something that we should be doing as academics. Our role is, as we mentioned earlier, it's to be set apart, to use that language, to research and to teach and to advocate and to change. And really, we're seeing podcasts stepping in and doing that work. Um, but of course, as you'd expect from an academic article, there's the point about, you know, criminologists have the expertise and, you know, that kind of thing. Now, this is not to puff myself up or my colleagues, but I think it's a good indication of how this popular format can do a lot of the things that criminology as a discipline should be doing. Uh, and it has uh, demonstrable influence on criminal justice. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think that is very interesting. One of the things I was thinking while you were saying that was we can worry about the effects of true crime on society and culture, but if people are putting on their, I guess, detective hats mm. and, um, you know, we can be concerned about feeling that neutrality, but if we're able to do that in a productive way, it may be actually resolving some of that fear and that some of that emotional labour as well. Yes, agreed. And so um, thinking about the way moral panics work, mm. you know, we hear about a, a, a ring, like a a kidnapping ring and there are people that are afraid to go for a walk in their neighbourhood or something. So we have this, there are moral panics in our society mm. and they tend to focus on large-scale evils. So we might be a frightened of a pedophile ring or a really massive organised crime, multi-million dollar scams or violent sex offenders or, as you said, serial murderers. Mm. But what I'm interested in is I think um, while we focus on those things, what is the capacity for normal human evil in the banal, boring sense? It's a great question and one that remains debated in criminology. Uh, on one level, uh, many criminologists would draw attention to societal factors, as we talked about earlier, criminogenic risk factors, to use the flowery language, and that role in creating environments 
within which crime may take place. But also there's a distinguishing between those who would be premeditated offenders, um, those who perhaps due to cognitive disorders may be more inclined to uh, to particular crimes than others. But I think what's really difficult is that in our society at the moment, there's this idea that people are inherently good Mm. and there's a pathologizing of offenders. That is to say, there's something wrong with them. That's why they commit a crime. We are not like that. That's just their problem. Mm. And so that kind of cultural understanding of criminality on one level is understandable. But on the other hand, it leads to this distinguishing of normal people from criminal people. Mm. Now, I come from the criminological tradition, which argues that human nature is inherently selfish. Human nature is inclined to pursue gratification in many respects, but also the recognition that certain environmental factors, certain stresses, and that's ORS, can lead individuals over time to undertake criminal acts and omissions broadly. So, for example, we know that individuals who are going through anxiety, individuals who have previous um, exposure to traumatic uh, experiences in the household, individuals who are under strain in relationships, those who are homeless, those who have drug dependency uh, and are unemployed, these factors contribute to um, stress or strain, to use the criminological term, that would lead someone to commit a crime. It doesn't have to be one of those big crimes that you mentioned but certainly we know that these are factors which can contribute. So what am I saying? I'm saying that we should not assume that crime could never happen because we're not like that criminal. Uh, We're not like that person. And there's a theory in psychology called fundamental attribution error. And it's the idea, and it's the wrong assumption, that human behavior is static. But we see that Human behavior is quite fluid, and there's a gentle way of describing it. For example, someone at home is going to be more relaxed with their family or their peers than if they're, for instance, at a town hall at a ceremony or, or at the office or something like that, because environments shape our behavior. And within certain branches of criminology, there's the study of how these environmental factors, the environment we're in, the social interactions that are taking place or not present can lead individuals who did not have a pre-existing desire to offend to in fact offend. For example, there might be an item in a room or in public. Now, someone might not have gone to that, say, park bench with the desire to offend, but because they see that, they're like, oh yeah, I might take that because no one's around. We know of broken window theory where if an environment is you know, in a bad in a bad way. And we know this with um, developments, for example, or abandoned buildings. There's a greater likelihood for those to be targeted for vandalism and break-ins. And so criminology, the more you read criminology, I think it draws attention to the fact that all humans are capable of evil. All humans are susceptible to criminal acts, criminal omissions, and criminal decision-making. This doesn't mean that individuals wake up one day and think, I'm going to commit a crime. It does happen. But in a number of instances, people move into criminal decision-making and criminal conduct. Mm. Now, what I'm not saying is that all people will commit those horrible acts that you mentioned at the start. But as a discipline, and certainly the area that I have been trained in and that I practice in as a criminologist, really cautions against that narrative of it could never happen to us. Because it's that kind of mindset that leads people to have uh, to not be on guard, uh, and it can lead to uh, very bad consequences. Uh, and I could give a number of examples, you know, like certain, going into certain. We talked about deviants going into certain groups over time can lead to anti-social behaviours being formed, mm. uh, anti-social desires being formed, and we know this particularly for youth crime, for example. Uh, And then there are more sinister crimes. You know, certain desires can form over time by exposure to certain material. And so, you know, they're two examples of uh, how this can occur over time. 
Yeah, and it it gets to the point where it is, um, if you're thinking about it too much, it's quite disturbing. And Mm. I'd really love to know how, from reading your article on emotional labor, that a lot of your faith was one of the things that helped you, Mm. even though you were exploring sexual abuse in churches, uh, it was your faith in God that helped you process that darkness. Did you want to explain how your faith helps you do that? Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, there was long seasons of constantly reading psychological literature and legal literature. Uh, And for those listening who are not familiar with those areas, they're very detailed, clinically detailed. Mm. And so it was reflecting on this, but also what we were talking about just a moment ago, that certainly for sexual offences against children and indeed child maltreatment more broadly, there's no pathological explanation for why most criminals in these areas commit their crime. There are criminogenic risk factors, but there's not one certain characteristic And so the literature in in that field really emphasizes the fact that over time people can become offenders when originally they would have no such intention. And so understandably, that really weighed on me. Mm. And, you know, since my research was on the church, uh, I started to, to doubt the goodness of Christianity, to doubt the goodness of the church. Though, on the other hand, faith is really important to to my work, not only in seeing that it can be used um, as an outlet of Christian, you know, service, but I think in remembering the reflections of what the Scriptures say. So in the Bible, we read that there's the promise that Jesus Christ, who we believe to be God, will come back and he will judge all people and all wrongs will be made right. And there's this really beautiful part of a book called Revelation, I know you know it well, Amy, that talks about all sin will be held to account. We see that justice will be done, but also there's that beautiful words of we will live with God and there'll be no more fear, there'll be no more crying, and there'll be no more death. Mm. It's, it's beautiful, and it's those kind of images of that it all will be made right really keeps me going as a criminologist. And I think when we think of true crime as a, as a genre, and what we talked about earlier, that many of them are unsolved, Christianity offers that hope that these things will be brought to justice. We might not see it in our lifetime, um, but God has promised that he will bring people to account. And so as a criminologist, it, it's necessary to, to think of these things because otherwise one can be easily led to despair. Criminology shows us that we'll never stop crime. And so unless there's something anchoring us, there's that despair which will likely happen. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. That's a great comfort. Um, it's quite an intense topic. Mm. I think we can go, oh, yeah, I love true crime. And then you start to think about yeah. The content, and it is, it's really upsetting and painful. Mm. Yeah, it's wonderful that you find that comfort in knowing that justice will be served and that there is a God who is just and good. Mm. Thanks so much for all the research you've done and all the thinking you've done. Oh, you're welcome. Processing this for us, and thanks so much for being on the show, Mike. Thanks for having me. I hope this episode answered some of the questions you might have about our obsession with true crime. When I first emailed Mike about this question, he was, of course, unfailingly polite, as you would expect, but he was feeling a lot of concern about what our obsession with true crime says about us and about wider society. Given he did so much reading for the episode, he also discovered that podcasts really are a way of bringing new light on closed and cold cases, and that law enforcement has been able to make use of them. However, it doesn't really solve that problem of why we have this thirst to know the details of a crime. Who did what to whom and when? I talked about being disturbed by the ghost tourism I saw when teaching my social policy class. My students and I were concerned about the way prisoners with significant mental health issues were represented by the tour guides. But at night, I was consuming Netflix dramas and true crime and not making the connection between the two. 
Is it right to make people suffering, pain and death entertaining? Also, what is happening in our psyche when we listen to the details of a particularly violent crime? Given that the people I know who devour true crime also happen to be some of the nicest people I know, I don't think enjoying true crime or crime drama is a marker of our propensity to commit crime. Although, as Mike said from his research and understanding, people just need to be in the right social group, the right circumstances to lead them to commit a crime they wouldn't consider in another situation. And when I say right, I of course mean, well, wrong. But think back. Was there a time when you did something or felt compelled to do something that you knew to be wrong because the circumstances were, well, right? When we take away the narrative structure, the music and the setup, crime is scary. It's easier to believe that a violent offender is a member of a different species altogether, a monster. But most offenders are not. What do you think about human evil? your own and other people's. Not to provoke fear. That's something I really try not to do. But people in extraordinary circumstances do extraordinary things. And I'm thankful we have someone like Mike wrestling with how to write social policy with a compassionate and critical eye. I was so moved by Mike's Bible reference at the end of this episode. It's a relief and a comfort for me to remember that there will be justice that the voices of those who have suffered at the hands of murderers, rapists and abusers are heard. The reference Mike made to Revelation was from chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's where I get my hope. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deeper Questions. If you like this episode, we'd love it if you would share it on your socials, follow us and subscribe. If you want more deep questions, you can go to our website, thirdspace.org.au. You can also flick me or Aaron a question. All our contact details are in the show notes. I'm Amy Aisham, and this has been another episode of Deeper Questions. Deeper Questions.